0: In a few moments, we're going to take the elements together for the Lord's Supper, for communion. But Ephesians is such a rich book when it comes to communion. It talks so much about redemption and about our salvation, past, present, and future. And um, before we even begin, let's open up in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight for the salvation that is in Christ. You loved us enough to send your Son. We've heard those words, some of us, all our lives. I pray they would make a deep impact on us tonight as we remember. Remember the past. Remember where we've come from. Remember the great sacrifice of Jesus on Calvary's cross. And in remembering, looking forward to the future to our walk with you, the adventure that you have ahead of us in this life, where you're leading us, and then on into glory. Thank you, Father. Thank you for the church, the body of Christ, gathering together tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Once upon a time, there was a prince who loved a beautiful maiden, but an enemy had captured her in a high tower. He set a rescue plan in order to bring her back and enlisted the help of two tiny creatures. One was a caterpillar named Claude, and the other was a butterfly. This is how the story goes. Claude the caterpillar was a crusty old character, always negative. The prince commissioned him, and he started out toward the tower. But Claude was quite fat and complained as he was sweating. Wouldn't you know it, the sun would have to be shining today, he grumbled. Then the weather began to change. Clouds moved in and it started to sprinkle lightly. Again, Claude grumbled. Rain, great, just what we need. I hate rain. But he made it to the tower and he found a vine growing up alongside of it. He inched his way up the vine... But it was a rose bush, and all the way up, you could hear him, ouch, ouch, ouch. When he reached the window, he said, Hey, lady, come here. Are you the maiden in distress? She nodded, looking down at the sweaty, muddy caterpillar. Claude gave her the once-over and said, You're kidding. I came all the way up here for the likes of you. I don't know what the prince sees in you. But he sent me with this message. Get ready. He's coming to get you. Five o'clock sharp. Understand? And off he went. Next came Barney the butterfly. Barney's wings lifted him gracefully into the air. He flew around until the maiden noticed him and he landed softly on her finger. She brought him close as he relayed the prince's message. Lovely and favored maiden, The prince loves you dearly at the sound of his voice, jump from the window into his arms. Thank you, butterfly. You're so sweet. But tell me, why was the caterpillar that came bringing the good news? Why did he bring the good news in such a nasty way? He was so rude. Oh, that's Claude. I used to be that way, too. Until I was transformed. Paul is speaking to us all about transformation. He tells us what we used to be. He tells us what happened. And then he tells us what's in store. He says you were dead in trespasses and sins. But God made you alive. That's how you used to be. But verse 4 of chapter 2 is the transformation we covered in brief last week. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Now, that's the same theme we continue with, beginning in verse 11 to the rest of the chapter. Uh, Look in verse 11. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Notice he says, look back, remember. That's what we're doing tonight. We're, as the sign says on the sides of the platform, remember. We drink to remember. The world drinks to forget. We're taking the elements to remember what Jesus did. We're looking back and remembering where we came from. So he says, therefore, remember. He paints the picture. And then in verse 13, but now in Christ. And then again in verse 19, now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You can always tell the depth of the well by how far you have to lower the rope. You can tell how great a salvation we enjoy by how far God had to lower the rope to rescue us. To what depth, what length God went to to secure salvation for us. And that's the picture that is painted here. We do well to remember. You know, that's a theme so often throughout the Bible. When the children of Israel were on the verge of entering the promised land, they had suffered for 40 years in the wilderness. They had complained for 40 years. Now they were on the verge of crossing over. And Moses stood before them in Deuteronomy. And he said, You shall therefore remember. All the way the Lord has led you these 40 years in the desert. How he's taken care of you. He told them to remember. Once they crossed the Jordan River, they set up stones of remembrance. They set them up at Gilgal so they would always remember what God had done. Stones of remembrance. We painted a black picture last time of our past. And by the way, it's not a picture of just some people. It's a portrait of everyone outside of Christ. This is how black it was. Whether we were Jew, Gentile, male, female, whether slave or free, it's the picture of all mankind. In verse 11, let's pick it up there, and we'll make a few verses down and comment. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The church at Ephesus was comprised mostly of Gentiles, non-Jews. There was a small colony of Jewish people in Ephesus, not many, but there was always a separation and antagonism from the Jewish section toward the Gentile section and from the Gentiles who didn't understand the Jewish religion, always an animosity. The Jews knew where they came from. They remembered that Abraham was their forefather, and that God gave their forefather, Abraham, a covenant of circumcision. A surgical procedure that was practiced on the eighth day of the male child's life. A sign, an outward visible sign that they belonged to God. And so Abraham had his sons circumcised. Isaac was the son of promise. Isaac had a couple of sons, Jacob and Esau. And they knew that Jacob was the son of promise. And Jacob had 12 sons, 12 tribes. So they could trace their lineage back and were quite proud of their heritage. But they became so proud of their heritage that they wanted to stay separate in any respect from non-Jews. For instance, not all, but some of the strict Jewish leaders had a saying. They said God created Gentiles as kindling for the fires of hell. Can you imagine being branded? Oh, you're part of the kindling wood God is going to use to burn for eternity. When strict Jewish Pharisees would walk down the streets, some of them wouldn't even walk down a street a Gentile had walked And if they had to do it, they would hold their robes tight close to their bodies so as not to get defiled. No spiritual cooties from Gentiles. (laughs) According to some of their laws, not biblical laws, but of their traditional laws, it was unlawful for a Jew to help a Gentile woman in labor give birth to her child because that would be to add more heathens Into the world. And then they gave them nicknames. Like dogs. Gentile dogs. Now look in verse 11. It's another nickname. It's actually a racial slur that Paul is referring to. Who are called uncircumcision. By what is called circumcision. David used this slur, you remember, against Goliath when uh, the Philistines were attacking the children of Israel. And he saw it, he heard what Goliath was saying. He said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would defy the armies of the living God? And so the circumcised Jews would look at Gentiles and call them, oh, they're the uncircumcised. Because they were trusting in the outward ritual for a relationship with God. That's why he makes reference to it. It's not that different today. Some people, even in Christian circles, rely on the outward ritual. It was performed at birth, baptism. I've been baptized. Or I've been christened. Or I've been confirmed as some sort of status symbol before God. Now, that's uh, verse 11 is, is, is the physical Thing, verse 12 is the spiritual reality. <laughs> Having no hope and without God in the world. It doesn't matter if you've been circumcised or uncircumcised. It matters much less than people think if you've been baptized or not baptized. It's an act of obedience, but you're not saved by it. Some people, however, make a huge deal. Not only that you've been baptized, but how you've been baptized. Well, have you been sprinkled or immersed? Well, when you were immersed, who was it that immersed you and what was the manner that it was done in? And some will say, you're not a true Christian unless you've been baptized by our elders, our leadership in our church with our authority. I haven't heard a little about a little boy who wanted to baptize his cat and make him a Baptist. <laughs> Full immersion. Full immersion. He filled up the bathtub for his evening bath, and he got all ready to grab his cat and dunk him underwater. Well, he made the mistake of getting water on his hands, and it dripped on the cat's head. And the cat, of course, figured out what was going on. Cats hate water. So meowing and scratching, the cat ran down the hall away from the little boy. And the little boy yelled after the cat, all right, be a Methodist then. Because all he got in was a few drops sprinkled on his head. (laughs) Some people, like the little boy, make a huge deal out of how you're baptized. The spiritual reality is this. Verse 12. You were without Christ. And then having no hope and without God in the world. Gentiles had no messianic hope. Jews always have had a Messianic hope. For 3,500 years, even in the worst of times, they looked forward to the coming of their Messiah. And unfortunately, they still do, although the Messiah has already come. There's a Jewish prayer that is said, I believe in the coming of Messiah, and even though he tarry, yet I will wait for him every coming day. It's a Messianic hope that kept them going for generation after generation. Gentiles had... No hope. Now historians tell us. That a couple thousand years ago. Just prior to the time of Christ. That there was a huge desperation. Worldwide. Just prior to the coming of Jesus. That. Roman and Greek polytheism. That had inundated the world. Brought people to a place of restlessness. That is. They felt that it was unfulfilling to be a part of those religious systems. They wanted more. And they yearned for more. And some of the writers during that period will say that among the Jews, there was high hopes that the Messiah would soon come. And among the pagans, Greeks and Romans, there were high hopes that there would be a change because of the desperation in their world. Now, in Ephesus, that's the church he's writing to, There were more gods and goddesses than you could shake a stick at. There were temples all over town. I've been in Ephesus. I've seen the ruins of some of those temples still standing today. It was a hopeless culture. They were without Christ. They were without hope. As I was reading this verse, I thought, well, that's a very contemporary verse. Not much has changed. The world today is very hopeless without Christ, without hope. For the most part in our culture, we have garden variety pagans. What I mean by that is they're without Christ. They they don't have any real solid future hope in the true God, but they add some kind of spiritual dimension to their life, and they'll try anything. Whether it's Britney Spears and Madonna with the Kabbalah that they're experimenting with the mystical Judaism that could be applied uh, in any way because it, it's such a broad interpretation and it is a mystical religion to the Schmorgesborg approach. I'll take a little of that, a little of this and add it all together and make my own religion. One of the questions everyone has, but few ever answer is why am I here? Where am I going? What is the meaning and purpose of life? We live in a generation where people are asking those questions, want answers desperately, but for the most part, haven't gotten them. Nicolas Cage, who's a very famous actor, as you know, said, I wonder if there's a hole in the soul of my generation. We have inherited the American dream, but where do we take it? How many people do you know who are genuinely satisfied with life? They look at their life and they go, I know the purpose of life. I know the meaning of life. And I'm fulfilled. I'm satisfied. Very few. Henry David Thoreau was right. Most men lead lives of quiet desperation. No one is worse. No condition is worse than being without Christ, without hope, in this world. But that was then. This is now. Notice the change in verse 13. But now. Again, that transitional phrase. Back in verse 4, it was but God. Here it is. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Notice that. It's not that Christ gives us peace though he does. It's not that Jesus makes for us peace, but he does. In the Greek, it's very emphatic. He himself is our peace. And here's why. In Christ, we're elevated. It's not that God takes Gentile and raises him to the level of a Jew. He takes Jew and Gentile and raises them to the level of being in Christ. So you lose social and ethnic distinctions. He himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. If you know much about ancient Judaism, you know that ancient Judaism was was all about separation, not integration. It wasn't a unifying thing. It was a separating thing. You could see it in the temple. You could see it in the synagogue. In the temple, there were courts. In the synagogue, there were areas for different people. For instance, the synagogue had a place for Jewish men, Jewish women. They sat on separate sides. Men sat with men. Women sat with women. And there was a place in the back for proselytes of the gate, they were called. These were non-Jews who decided, I want to be a part of that religion. After they went through all of the rituals, the circumcision, etc., they were still confined to an area called the area for the proselytes of the gate. In the temple, there were courts. Big court, that was the court of the Gentiles. It's sort of like the nosebleed section in Angel Stadium, way far away, afar off. And the closer you got were more courts for special groups of people. Court of the Gentiles, outside. Come a little further, you have a court just for Jewish women. A little further, court for Jewish men. A little further, a court for the priests. A little bit further, right in the middle, the temple itself, the holiest of all, where the high priest went once a year. Very separated, very segregated. Now look at that verse, verse 14. He is our peace, himself is our peace, who has made both one and broken down the middle wall of separation. Did you know that in the ancient temple, the temple of Herod, There was a wall around the court of the women that separated the Gentiles from the rest of the Jews. And that wall had an inscription all the way around it. It was like a no trespassing sign. But it said this. No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and the enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. In other words, cross this line, buddy boy, and you're a dead man. Gentiles were killed for crossing that line. There was a wall of separation. That's what Paul is referring to. And any Gentile who visited Jerusalem, they knew about that wall. Now, we're going to take the elements in a few minutes, celebrating the fact that the wall of separation, the no trespassing sign is removed. Something else, just a little bit of historical background. Any Gentile who converted to Judaism, a Gentile was called somebody who was afar off. Once you converted, you went through circumcision, you went through the rituals, the cleansing baths in the mikvah. You were said by the rabbi to come close. You were brought near. Now you're one of us. We bring you near. We bring you into our fellowship. So Paul is saying this. God's taking you out of the nosebleed section. And he's bringing you right up into his throne of glory in Christ. How? Verse 15. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity. That is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, that is, Jew and Gentile, thus making peace. You say, no, wait a minute. It says he abolished in his flesh these commandments, the law. How does that work? Didn't Jesus himself say, don't think that I came to abolish the law? I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill it. Good thinking. This is how it works. Jesus fulfilled in himself the moral law perfectly. He lived the perfect life we could never live. In keeping, in fulfilling the moral law, he was able by his death end to abolish The ceremonial law, which means you don't have to, as a Christian, keep the Sabbath in order to walk in fellowship with God. You don't have to go through all of the regulations and the washings and the cleansing. The barrier that separated you is now removed. Verse 16. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Sin is the great separator. Christ, the great reconciler. Sin is always separated. Sin separates man from man, woman from woman, friend from friend, husband from wife, nation from nation. It separates man from man, and it separates man from God. Adam and Eve were separated from God by sin. As soon as they sinned, God went through the garden one day and said, Adam, where are you? Why? Did God need a GPS to find Adam? Adam. Adam knew where God was geographically. He was asking the question spiritually. There's a separation. In the day that you eat thereof, you'll surely die. The moment he ate, he died. He was separated spiritually. So sin separated Adam and Eve, our first parents, from God. Later on, sin separated man from man. Adam and Eve's kids were separated from each other. Cain and Abel, one killed the other. The cross was all about reconciling that which has been separated. Picture it this way. It's just a visual. Jesus Christ dying on a cross, arms outstretched, bleeding, with one hand able to grab his father, with one hand able to grab mankind and bring us both together. He was the bridge. Taking a hold of God, the father's hand, so to speak, the, hold, the hold of our hand, so to speak, and bring us together. You see the word reconcile, verse 16, that he might reconcile them both. The word in Greek is katalaso. Katalaso. I'm going to tell you what it means. It means to change or alter thoroughly, completely change. It also means to clear a path. Here's the picture there's a roadway, a pathway. I can't get through the path to get to somebody else unless somebody clears the debris, the obstacles. I went to North Carolina a few years ago, and I was there right after a hurricane, and I was going up to speak at the Billy Graham Training Center at the Cove. Couldn't get up the road because of the debris, the branches that were on the road. They had to clear it so that I could get from the place of fellowship to the cabin where I was going to sleep. They had to reconcile it. They had to remove the obstacles from the road. That's what the cross is all about. And here's Paul's point. God went to the trouble of reaching down to the earth, clearing the debris away so that Jew and Gentile don't have to be Jew and Gentile, but brother and brother, brother and sister, family of God. The family of God is possible because of the reconciliation the clearing of the path done at the cross. So the cross eliminated the wall that separated man from God and man from man. What that means is, if you were to walk into the early church 2,000 years ago, you would see something that would be absolutely revolutionary. You would see people who would be separated by culture, by language, by sexual orientation, male and female, slave, slave owner, all in one fellowshipping. The early church was a billboard of reconciliation. Now, it didn't come easy. It was hard. It was hard for Peter, the apostle. You remember when Peter was um, staying with his friend, uh, Simon the Tanner, in Joppa, and it was lunchtime, he was hungry, and he fell into a trance, and he saw this thing come out of heaven like a sheet tied at four corners and there was unkosher animals on it and he sees it. And God speaks to him and says, Peter rise, kill and eat. And Peter being the very obedient, mild mannered fisherman that he was said, no way Lord. I've never had anything that's unclean. I'm kosher. I'm not going to eat something unkosher. I'm forbidden. And God said, What I have cleansed, let no man call common or unclean. Now, he's hearing that, and at the same time, somebody's ringing the doorbell downstairs. And it happened to be a delegation from Caesarea, from a guy's house named Cornelius, who called for Peter to come to him and preach the gospel. Peter goes to Caesarea the next day, walks into the house of this Gentile centurion, and he says, You know, it's unlawful for me to hang out with Gentiles or walk into their homes. For Jews don't do this. But God has been showing me that what he has cleansed, I can't call common or unclean. In other words, I'm starting to realize that this Christianity thing is all about bringing people together, not separating them. It's all about integration, reconciliation, not separation. For that reason, I've never been a big fan, and I'm going to be careful how I say this, I've never been a big fan of segregating people into groups in church. I know it's important from time to time to have something just for singles, something just for couples, something just for men, something just for women, something just for young, something just for old. But I think the best thing to do is get us all together. All at one time. Um, I, uh, I remember uh, being with single people and uh, having meetings, and they would usually talk about they wanted to be married. That's the only thing. I just want to be. I just want a wife, man. I just. I don't want the rapture to come till I get married. I gotta get a wife. And then I remember being at meetings with couples. <laughs> Talking about how hard it is since they've been married. And I thought, you know, it would be good for those single people to be in some of these meetings, and it would be good for some of these married people to be around some of those single people in their meetings. There is an element of integration that needs to take place. A lot of churches talk about their demographic, our target audience. Our target audience, our demographic in this community is this type of person, this kind of income, this kind of education. My target audience is anyone and everyone who will listen to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That should be our target audience. Paul wrote to the Colossians and he said, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. The operative phrase is every man doesn't matter. Race doesn't matter. Age. Uh, One of the, my favorite scenes in my mind, several years ago, we used to have at my previous fellowship, a, um, a heavy metal church. I know that sounds odd, but we had this guy who was a rocker and it was the day and age when glam rock was real big. Thank God it's not big anymore, but it was big then. And you know, um, uh, we just—he didn't know what to do with his music. I said, "Why don't you start a Friday night fellowship just for hard rockers?" And it was the loudest, most obnoxious thing in the world. But kids got saved, and eventually they'd integrate into the main services. Took a long time, but they did it. And I remember looking one Easter Sunday to my right and seeing this guy in a three-piece suit, very conservative, pinstripe—you know, looked like the top lawyer of the community—right next to a kid with a spiked leather bracelet. Spiked hair, tattoos, and both of them had Bibles open and they were worshiping the Lord. And I said, That's the church, man. That's the way it ought to be. Verse 17 And he came and he preached peace to you who are afar off and to those who are near. For through him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit." The word picture that Paul uses is that of a temple. If you were Jewish, you would think of one thing, the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. That was the most famous temple. It was really the only temple. If you were a Gentile living in Ephesus, you would be thinking of the great temple of Diana or some of the other ones scattered around. It was important imagery. The temple in Jerusalem was an incredible building with an incredible foundation. If you if you come with us this year to Israel, I wanna show you some of the foundation stones. Some of the stones, solid stone, limestone, hewn out of pure rock, just to the northwest of the temple area and brought up, set in place. One of the foundation stones is 29 feet long, several feet high, it's about the size of a, a railroad boxcar, one stone. I don't know how many times I, I read a report on it, but an incredible weight, huge. The cornerstone was the stone by which the rest of the temple derived two things, unity and symmetry. You'd lay down the stone, and every stone was laid on a course on top of it and slightly pushed in just a little bit so it wouldn't topple. So the stones were set. And then another course was laid. The stones were adjusted to it. And the point is this. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. He's the foundation upon which the church is laid. It's not built on Peter. That would be a very faulty foundation. If you know anything about Peter, if you read about his biography in the scripture, you wouldn't want a movement built on him either. Especially a guy who says, No way, Lord. I've never eaten anything common or unclean. Just do what he says. Don't argue with him, okay, Peter? But that's Peter. Jesus Christ is the foundation. The second course was the apostles and the prophets. That's his point here. Everything lies to the chief cornerstone. Jesus is the massive rock. Then there's the foundational teachings of the prophets of the Old Testament that spoke about Christ, the apostles of the New Testament. And then, one by one, we're added to it. Stone upon stone that builds into a holy temple. So it's that the apostles and the prophets personally laid the foundations of the church. It would be like saying in modern terms, Jesus is the cement slab and the apostles are the two by four foundational stones or, uh, excuse me, studs, the two by fours. And then the rest of the house is built. He's the chief cornerstone. Now look at, uh, and we're going to close with this. Verse 19, now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. You're not outsiders. You're not Gentile dogs. You're not called the uncircumcision. There's no slur here. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's what we are. We're all near, we're all citizens. How can you tell tonight if you're a citizen of the household of God? If you're a citizen of the kingdom of God, I'm going to give you three tests. Number one, how do you feel around other Christians? How do you feel around other Christians? Are you at ease with other believers? Are you a little bit uncomfortable? Do you feel like an outsider? Do you feel more comfortable with another crowd, an unbelieving crowd? I don't like being around these church people. Well, it's probably a good indication that you're not a Christian. You say, well, I, no, listen, I understand that there are some people that are a little bit goofy, but all of us as believers should feel an, an at ease with one another, comfortable around other Christians. Now, I remember my first experience as a non-believer being in a Christian church, a real Christian setting. I didn't like it. I felt uncomfortable. I saw their worship, and some of them had their hand raised, and I thought, oh, man, this is not my crowd. Test number two, do you understand what is being talked about? Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and he said, the natural man does not understand the things of the spirit. He can't understand them. They're spiritually discerned. Test number three, are you conforming to the laws and customs of this new country? In Christ. That's how you can tell if you're a citizen. Are you comfortable being with other citizens of the country? Do you understand what is being talked about as we go through the Bible? And number three, are you conforming to the laws of the country? Are you being obedient to the dictates of scripture? That's the third test. When I was in the UK, I rented a car and uh, it took me about two minutes to discover uh, I was going against the flow of traffic I go, oh, that's right. They drive on the wrong side of the road. And they corrected me. Oh, no, mate. You drive on the wrong side of the road. We're on the right side. I said, oh, no, we invented the car. We get to choose what side of the road it's on. But anyway. If you're going the wrong direction that the Bible says you're to be going, you're probably not a citizen of the kingdom. You're still an outsider, still a stranger, still a foreigner. Now, I opened with the story of the caterpillar. Barney the butterfly versus Claude the caterpillar. One was transformed, one wasn't. If you're transformed, if there's change, then all of these three tests will be met. I'm going to close with another caterpillar story. There were two caterpillars, they were inching their way along the grass, and they saw a butterfly overhead. And one nudged his friend, the other caterpillar, and said, you couldn't get me up in one of those things for a million bucks. (laughs) That's how a lot of people look at Christians. You couldn't get me to be one of those for a million bucks. Well, you could if Jesus transformed your life. And that's what it's all about. Has there been a transformation? Are you still afar off? Do you come and feel like, well, I'm here, but I don't feel like I'm really a part of the family? Then it's time to release yourself into his arms and let Jesus who died on the cross bring you and the father together. Let's pray. And as we do, I'm going to ask the the um, communion board to come forward and we'll pass out the elements. Heavenly father, thank you for this opportunity to sing, to worship, to share together as a family, to take these elements of communion, the Lord's Supper. Lord, as we take them together as a body, it reminds us, Lord, that we're a part of one another. We're going to be nourished by the same elements, the same bread that goes in one place.